Amen. Thank you, Brian. <clears throat> well, if you guys have your copy of God's Word, I'd like to open to the book of Micah. I'd know that Brian did not read Micah. He read Matthew, and there's a reason for that. Um, there, there are some parallels in, these, in those two passages, but Micah chapter 4, we're going to be beginning in verse 6, and we're going to read all the way through it. If you have your copy of God's Word, it'll be good to have it open. I want to encourage you to be kind of paying attention to some things that are there in the text. And while you're turning there, I, I've been, uh, I want to just tell you, I've been reading a, a book about uh, Martin Luther. It's called The Legacy of Luther. It looks at a little bit of his life, a little bit of the things that he did in history, you know, a little over 500 years ago, to, um, to bring about some changes that were happening. And during his time, there were two groups that were claiming to be the true church. One was the Roman Catholic Church. And they had a, a big claim, and they had been what most people knew. And, and then as Luther got on the scene and as the other reformers after him, so many people came in and, and started preaching things differently and teaching things differently. And so now you had what we would call today Protestant churches claiming to be the true church. And so at one point in time, Luther um, wrote down and he noted seven qualities that would help people discern what is the true church what, from what the Bible would see as a false church. And let me just fly through these six of these really quickly. One was the word. He said that the word would be preached, that the word of God would be elevated, that there would be a high view of Scripture, that the word would be over tradition. But then he also talked about baptism. He said that baptism is, is inclusion into the body. He talked about what that meant to be a part of the body of Christ. And then there's the Lord's Supper, that communion, that fellowship meal that we have together, that meal that we will do on Friday night as we celebrate Jesus' crucifixion. He said in the true church, you'll find discipline. You'll find the opportunity for members to discipline one another, to encourage one another, to hold each other accountable. He talked about biblical offices and how there will be offices like elder and deacon. And, the, and then he talked about worship, how it would be filled, just as we did today, filled with congregational singing, with God's word elevated, with, with God's people worshiping the Lord. And all of these seem to make sense. Those six, they make sense to almost all of us, I think. Uh, maybe I'm a little biased because I've you know, been a part of a church for so long. But then Luther included one final category of the true church that almost seems to come out of nowhere, and yet it ties in perfectly with our topic today, and that is that Luther said the, the seventh thing that will mark the true church is suffering. Robert Godfrey reports about it like this regarding suffering. He says, seventh, the holy Christian people are externally recognized by the possession of the sacred cross. They must endure every misfortune and persecution and all kinds of trials and evil from the devil, the world, and the flesh. Since the servant was not greater than the master, as Jesus had taught, the church would suffer in this world as it served Christ faithfully. In some ways, it seems counterintuitive for us that suffering would mark the people of God. And there are some people who come to faith assuming that life will be easy. I thought Jesus redeemed me from the mess. I shouldn't have any more pain. And yet for the people of the Old Testament, and as we've seen throughout history, the people of the early church 
Suffering was a part of their lives. Suffering has marked God's people for, for as long as there have been God's people. Now, here we are in, in the book of Micah, and we, as we've seen over the last few weeks, Micah has been confronting the sin of God's people, the sin of idolatry, the sin of covetousness, the sin of, of injustice that the leaders had been inflicting on the people. And, and Micah promised them, he said, there's going to be a day when you're not going to be in this land. We're gonna, God is going to take you out, and he's going to use foreign armies to remove you. And then Micah said, there's a bit of hope. There's a hope that will come on the other side of that. And while there is, a still, there is still a lot that the Israelites will go through, there is hope. But that hope, as we're going to see today, that hope ultimately is going to come through suffering. That hope is going to come through suffering. God provide, or Micah provides some helpful truths about suffering. And in some ways, I think he's helping us to make sense of suffering. When I was initially preparing this, I was beginning, I was gonna call this victory for victims. Because there is a great victory, and we see that through Jesus Christ. There is that vic- great victory, and yet so often we have to endure the suffering, the victim as a being under trials. And so I think in some ways Micah helps us to understand and to make sense of suffering. And so if you want to take notes in your outline. Micah begins with the presence of our suffering. He begins by helping us understand the reality and the very presence of our suffering. Look at verses 6 and 7. Micah says, in that day, declares the Lord, and that'll be in some time in the future. And he just talked about that earlier in the same chapter. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now, I don't know if you notice that it seems like there are three different groups of people, three different categories of people that Micah is referring to. And it it might be three different ones or it might be three perspectives on the same people. But, But let's think about these differently. First of all, you have the lame. And the lame seems to refer to people who have some sort of a physical ailment or disability. Several commentators suggest that this may be a nod back to Jacob, the the father of, of, well, after Abraham, the father of Israel, the nation. You see, one night in Genesis 32, Jacob was there and, and an angel from the Lord, the Lord himself came and began to wrestle with Jacob. And they wrestled all night long. And they fought with each other and And yet at the end of that, the angel hurt Jacob in his hip. And for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. He was disabled. He was injured because of that encounter with God. And so anticipating the future discipline that the people of Judah would receive, Micah addresses those who will be lame and likely addresses the nation as a whole, indicating that just as Jacob walked with a limp, so the nation would have its own limp, its own ailment, its own disability. And yet, think about this. There are those of us individually, we have our own ailments. We have our own disabilities. Some are born with them. Some develop them through aging, through sickness. Some of us acquire ailments through accidents, like a sports injury or a car accident or even a physical assault. And so we're marked by that. 
for the rest of our lives. We walk with a limp. And corporately or collectively as a church, we may have our own ailments. We may have our own disabilities. Maybe it's prejudices. Maybe it's blind spots in ministry. Maybe it's the same stubbornness that marked the people of Judah and Israel. And Micah seems to acknowledge that the condition of the lame, disabled, the injured, he notes them. But Micah doesn't only note them. He secondly notes the the driven away or the cast off. And as we've already seen over the last couple of weeks, part of Micah's purpose is to communicate regarding the coming judgment, which will take the form of an exile, which means the people will be driven out of their land. They will be forced away from the very nation, the very city, all the towns that they are familiar with. They will be in exile. They were physically driven away from the place that God had set aside from them. And I wonder how often we might feel like we've been driven away, like we've been cast off. For some, there's the real possibility that coming to faith in Christ results in exile from family, from friends. This is not as much a concern here in the United States, but for people who are from other cultures, there is that shame that comes in for those who say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. They run the risk of being shamed and ostracized from being exiled in their families. As you think about it, pray for Eric and Lynn Bass in the Middle East. Some of the very people that they are discipling are people who've been driven away, who have death threats on their lives because they've chosen to be called followers of Christ. For some people, if they go public with their faith, they could lose their jobs, their only means of livelihood. It's a very real possibility for those people. But I do wonder also if there are other ways where we can be exiled. Maybe it's perceived exclusion from groups or individuals, feeling isolated, feeling alone. Maybe it's because of our infirmities. Maybe it's because of our faith, our political points of view. Maybe even just our interest are so different from someone else's that we feel left out. There are any number of reasons or situations where the realities of being cast off or driven away might touch us emotionally. In addition to talking about the lame and the driven away, Micah talks about the afflicted. And I think it's important to notice who is doing the afflicting In this passage, look in your Bibles at verse 6. Who is it that is afflicting the people of Judah, the people of Israel? God is afflicting them. He is the one who is behind it. As painful as it may be to consider, this points to God's sovereignty, his reign over all things. It communicates volumes about God's relationship with our suffering. First of all, it reminds us that God is aware when we are suffering. He knows what's happening to us. He is aware of the pain, both the emotional, the physical, the relational that we're facing. He knows. But secondly, because God often is sometimes, especially in in Judah's life, God is the one who does the afflicting. He he allows it. He, He is not some indifferent bystander. The things that happen in our life, God allows for a reason and 
We see this clearly in the book of Job. If you've ever read that book, it's a, 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 a really challenging book to read. You have this man with great wealth and great pros, 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 prosperity. This guy who had everything, a bunch of kids, he was happy and content, and he walked faithfully with the Lord. And yet God allowed him to lose his kids, his wealth, and his health. And in that, he allowed Job to suffer. And that's a big question in the book of Job. And ultimately, it was to drive Job back to God, to prove that God is sovereign. And it's painful to think about, God, why would you put this guy, why would you allow him to go through that? And sometimes we may not know this side of eternity, exactly why God is doing the things he's doing. This week, we got word that my sister-in-law, Teresa, who now for about two years has been um, fighting this brain tumor. She had a brain tumor. It was removed. And then, you know, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but she um, had a stent put in and all these things. Her health is just very in, in really bad shape. Well, Tuesday night, she began having seizures. And when I visited her Wednesday midday, she was still seizing. She has since been put in another hospital under the care of epileptic folks who, who, who know, they think they know what to do. But so many of the doctors and nurses said, we haven't seen anything like this. And I want to I ask, I said, God, why, why do you allow Teresa to go through this? I mean, look at her father. Her father is one of the most godly men that I know. Her father has been praying daily for his children from the time they were little. Her father continues to faithfully teach the word of God. And he has this wonderful ministry. God, why do you allow her to be afflicted the way she is? And I don't, I don't know. And I know it wears on her father and mother. It wears on her husband and kids. It wears on her sisters. But I think it's important for us to understand that God is aware. The things that he allows in our lives, he is aware of what is going on. But then thirdly, not only is, is God aware and not only does God allow it, but thirdly, God afflicts. He says, those whom I have afflicted. And in the case of Judah, their suffering was ordained by God, not just allowed by his permission, not just God saying, okay, you can, I'm going to allow this to go on in their lives, kind of like, like happened with Job. But God is saying, I am intentionally ordaining that this act will happen. For Judah, their exile was going to be ordained by his volition. He was going to call these outside armies to come in and invade and take his people away as an act of discipline. And in thinking about God's role in our suffering, some people have stated that God is being abusive. And sometimes we can look at that and say, God, are you just a cosmic killjoy? But that's not the case. You see, there's something about pain and suffering that we need. It wakes us C.S. Lewis famously commented about pain by saying, pain insists upon being attended to. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pain. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So Micah began this section acknowledging the presence of the pain and suffering that the people of Judah would experience. And with Micah expressing each of these things to the lame and the exile, to the afflicted, I do think it's important that we recognize that you recognize that God knows your situation. We may not like it. We may not like those disabilities that God allows us to have. We may not like those pains that God has allowed us to encounter. We may not like that, but God is aware. He understands your condition. You are not alone or forgotten, even in the midst of your suffering. But secondly, Micah acknowledges that suffering hurts. He recognizes the pain of our suffering in verses 9 and 10. In fact, he calls out to the people. Look at what it says there. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go out to Babylon. And it seems like their pain, at least initially, was the result of lacking a king or at least a godly king. And so God asks this rhetorical question. He says, like a woman in the midst of the pain of labor, Judah is called to cry out, to cry out to God in the midst of their suffering. The suffering and the discipline there they will face is very real pain. And I think implied in that is the joy that will come just as childbirth, the pain of child produces the, the pain of childbirth produces the joy of the child. So too the pain of the suffering that Judah will encounter will produce the joy that results in their lives and as on the other side of that. The pain is real, but it's not wasted. And even though suffering is often emotionally, physically, and spiritually painful, Micah reminds the people of Judah and us of the promise through our suffering. There is a promise that God has for us through our suffering. Look at verses 7 and 10. In verse 7, he says, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And then, as if in the midst of the pain of childbirth, Micah says, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In these two brief verses, Micah notes three things or three promises from God. The first is this, that God will reign. God will reign over them. He will be their God and they will be his people. As a theocracy, God had established the nation to be a nation that would follow his rules and his laws. And when the human kings were put in place, They too were supposed to govern, guided by God's ultimate reign in the nation. And yet, unfortunately, the nation found themselves in the face of discipline because of their rebellion and the rebellion of their rulers, the idolatry, the covetousness, the injustice, all the things that God had told them not to do. And God's promise through their suffering, in the midst of their suffering, is that he would reign again in a new way. Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, reminds us in Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after this exile, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them 
and I will write it on their hearts, and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, when God wakes us up in the midst of our pain, we need to come back to the promise of his reign. What does it look like for us to submit to his ways again? What does it look like for us to be in alignment with him? Where do we need to repent and say, God, I'm sorry that I was doing, I was messing up. I was over here in my own sin. And, and so this suffering is a good and right discipline on your part because of my rebellion. But secondly, not only does God promise his reign, God promises a rescue. God promised to rescue the people of Judah from the midst of their exile, from the midst of their pain and suffering. And as we read through the rest of the biblical historical um, documents that we have, the record we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that God did exactly as he promised. After 70 years in exile, the people were brought back into the land. And I believe there is an ultimate rescue that we will experience when Jesus returns to reign. When the glimpse of all the, all the nations coming before him that we got to see last week, do you remember that? When all the nations will come before the mountain of the Lord and they will, they will worship him and they will submit before him. But a distant and future rescue is not comforting in the midst of pain. I mean, think about this. There were people in Judah, in Israel, who went off into exile and died in the midst of their pain and suffering. A far-off return, a far-off rescue was not very helpful to them. I think for us, we have to recognize that sometimes that future that God has promised is sometimes difficult for us to wrestle with. God, I want relief now. I want it now. And yet we, we get to trust that God is doing something. So how do we live with that? How do we navigate suffering with a distant rescue? How do we walk in the presence of suffering, know that our rescue may not happen the way we hope for it? How do I res wrestle with the fact that the rescue that my sister-in-law, that we hope for in my sister-in-law, might not ever be her full restoration? of health. She may walk with a limp in her head for the rest of her life. We have to recognize that rescue might not be relief from suffering, but strength to endure through suffering. And I think we have to recognize that part of that, part of the joy that we have of being a part of the body of Christ is that that suffering happens in community. There's a guy named Ajith Fernando who is a wor worker with Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. And he's had several opportunities to minister to people who are come, who've come out of either Islam or out of, of Hinduism into faith in, in, in Jesus Christ, into Christianity. And as a result, they've been ostracized. They've been kicked out of their families. They've been kicked out of jobs. And so he's ministering to these people. And he noted five things that suffering does for people's faith in Christ, five outcomes. And the first one is this, is that suffering helps us in that we, we have this fellowship of suffering with Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his, meaning Jesus' suffering, and become like him in his death. Fernando says that one of the most beautiful consequences of suffering is that it brings us closer to Christ. 
Our Savior suffered so that we might be free from the eternal consequences and power of our sin. In fact, he noted, he, he did a little study, and he looked at all the ways in the New Testament where we're called to be like Christ, to do things like Christ did. There are 28 times in the New Testament that, that we are called to be like Christ. 18 of those, he said, are, design, are, are called to be like Christ in his suffering. In his suffering. Suffering draws us closer. It helps us understand what Christ endured on our behalf. But secondly, he notes that suffering brings fellowship with other believers. After Peter and, and some of the other disciples were in prison, it says when they were released in Acts 4.23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. There's a phrase, misery loves company, right? We love to commiserate. We love to complain. But, but here, Peter and, and his friends, they went back to the others and it's, this wasn't a pity party that they were coming back to. This is a, a company of spiritual support and encouragement. It's a company of mutual building up one another. The Apostle Paul encourages, encourages us in Galatians 6, 2, to bear one, another, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And Fernando notes that in our fellowship with other believers, we can help them stem the tide of bitterness. So I want to encourage you. If in the midst of your suffering, you're beginning to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm being bitter about this, reach out to a brother and sister in Christ. Reach out to someone and say, hey, will you pray with me? Will you walk with me through this? And if you, in a good place, see someone else who's in a, who's in a difficult situation, reach out to them. Reach out to them and say, let me sit with you. Let me pray with you. Let me walk with you in the midst of this. You are not alone. But thirdly, Fernando notes God's sovereignty. When, when, the, when these guys came out of prison, they recognized that it was the sovereign Lord who, who had ordained for them to go into prison, for them to be tried like they were. They acknowledged, just as Micah preached to the people of Judah, that God is sovereign over the suffering. Fernando says that this, is, this vision of sovereignty enables the Christian to have peace during the storm and respond to the crisis without breaking Christian principles. Fourthly, Fernando acknowledges God's commission. Acts, 20, Acts 4, 29 to 30 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through your name, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So not only does God reign over our suffering and persecution, but he has a mission for us in the midst of that. Fernando's wife uh, got cancer at one point in time. And it's so weird to think about it this way. But she, she said when she came home from the doctor, from the diagnosis, she went to her husband, and of course, they're saddened and, and disheartened and thinking, God, what, do, what is it you want us to do with this? She turned to her husband and she said, now we have the opportunity to minister to people about God's sovereignty and suffering. We've been commissioned through sickness to recognize that God is doing something. Because in their culture, for so many folks, if you've got sickness in your life, it's because you did something bad. They call it karma. 
If you did something and you're getting bad things in your life, it's because you were wrong about something. And yet we've seen time and time again, it's not so much the wrongness, but it's there, there, that God may have a commission for us. But then finally, God's intervention in Acts 4.31. After they had prayed and they were gathered together, the place where they were was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There in the early church, God intervened, providing a tangible experience of his presence. I have a dear friend who is is unfortunately facing a, a custody battle for his children. And he's been in this battle for a year, and, and it's, it's just been a, a devastating time. And the other day, he said, as he was preparing to go into court, he read Psalm 35. And he said it was as though God called him to read that. And then God's presence was so evident in his life. He had this peace that God was aware of what was going on. That God, and God allowed some outcomes to happen that had It had been such a challenging situation for the last year. And God changed some things. God intervened. And God can intervene to remove the suffering, but God can also intervene to strengthen us to endure what he's allowing us to encounter. So as it pertains to God's promise in our suffering, in addition to promising to reign and rescue his people, God finally promises redemption. Micah said, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Judah was eventually freed from their exile and imprisonment, and through Jesus Christ, he has redeemed us from our sin. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, meaning in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So God has redeemed us from the prince of the power of the air, from, from the evil of this age. And so far in this chapter, we've seen the presence or the reality of our suffering, the pain of our suffering, and the promises of God in the midst of our suffering. And then finally, Micah reveals the providence of God in our suffering in verses 8, 11 to 13. He says, And you, O tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And then in verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. And shall devote their gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. As we've already seen, God does not allow our suffering to happen needlessly. He has a purpose for it. And the exile that would happen to Judah would happen according to God's plan. And I love how Micah says, they do not know, meaning the enemies, the people of Babylon, do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. Those are, who are afflicting Judah think they are destroying God's people. And they assume that falsely. And God uses their actions against them. And in the exile and as a result of the suffering of God's, as a result of, of the suffering, God's people will experience God's provision of strength. God provides strength, even victory for his people. He says, I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. 
The trials that we encounter produce strength in us. God does not allow us to be tested beyond what we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And that increased strength allows us to be more able to endure in the future, but also it creates a greater value in us. 1 Peter 1, 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, finally, the suffering that Judah encountered and I think the, the suffering that we will encounter is ultimately for God's glory. Eventually, Judah would be freed and would gain victory over their adversaries. And whatever gain they would receive in the face of their persecution and in their victory would be devoted to the Lord. We see that in verse 13. God is glorified as he strengthens us to persevere. God is glorified as he produces in us a refined faith. God is glorified as we grow to trust in him more. God is glorified even in the midst of our suffering. And so in closing, I want us just to think, I know that today is Palm Sunday, and we might look at Palm Sunday and think, well, Joel, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? The victory that Jesus walked into that Sunday was followed up by persecution and suffering so that ultimately, and his death, the resurrection brought victory for you and me through the suffering of our sin, through the suffering of Jesus Christ. You see, these people on that Palm Sunday many years ago thought they were escorting their next political king, and many thought it was a coronation, the celebration of the Sunday that resulted in horrific suffering. But through what Jesus encountered, the suffering he encountered, he provided our means of redemption. He provided our rescue. He provided our hope. And so, beloved, I want to encourage you, when you face trials and suffering, know that your Savior suffered for you. Learn from him. Trust him. Lean on him and lean on his people. That's why he's called us together. That's why he has assembled us as a church to bear one another's burdens. And friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to just encourage you, how do you deal with suffering? Do you have a means of understanding it? Does suffering have any rationale? What is God trying to awaken you to through your suffering? I hope that you see that while suffering is painful, it's part of God's perfect plan and his plan to perfect his people. Suffering is the means by which he secured your way of having a relationship with him. And so if you've not done yet, done so yet, trust in him. Believe. Let's pray. God, thank